Hello, it's Monday the 22nd of November. I'm Jim White, sitting in for Andrew Pearce, who, judging by the pictures of him in the Daily Mail last week, is spending a well-earned week off in the gym. And this is the Andrew Pearce Show, coming direct from the Daily Mail newsroom. The vile child killer Colin Pitchfork is back in prison after breaching his parole conditions. But we'll be asking, why was he ever allowed out? The filth pouring down our rivers continues unabated. When will water companies finally be held to account for their discharge? And Adele has taken a stance against Spotify's shuffle. We'll be finding out why. Colin Pitchfork, who raped and strangled two 15-year-old girls in the 1980s, is back in prison less than eight weeks after being released from a life sentence. He breached his licence conditions by approaching teenage women in the street and trying to establish a connection with them. How was it that Pitchfork was ever released, given that the warnings were clear that he remained a danger to the public? More to the point, is the parole system which approved his release still fit for purpose. Uh, With me to discuss this is Julie Bindle, the author and feminist campaigner. Julie, um, when he was released, uh, what sort of surveillance was Pitchfork under? Well, I think because there had been such um, a scene about his imminent release across the media and with feminist campaigners such as myself asking the question, how do we know he's safe? How do we know he's rehabilitated? There was probably more surveillance on him than is usual um, when dangerous sex offenders uh, leave prison, most of whom we don't get to hear about. Um, So obviously there was enough for warning bells to be rung when he was hanging around um, girls, and obviously we can never trust his intentions. But you can't ever put the type of surveillance on men like Pitchfork that's going to keep women and girls out of danger. And apart from which, of course, you know, one thing that's changed since Pitchfork was sent to prison is the availability of sadistic necrophiliac porn. And he is a sadistic necrophiliac, which makes him an extremely dangerous individual who can access the type of pornography that will feed his fantasy. So it's just, the question is, what risk assessment did they make? And what convinced the parole board that he poses no further danger to the general public, to women and girls? And and do you know that? Do you know what the process was behind his release? Well, I know what the process of parole boards are, because, of course, many of us campaigned um, to overturn the parole board decision on the black cab rapist John Warboys, who had seemed to convince the board that he was safe to be released, despite the fact that he hadn't even confessed to what we believe are hundreds of rapes of women, and the CPS hadn't bothered to throw those into the indictment when he was uh, on trial for, I think it was only a couple of rapes out of the estimated 400. And what found then by commissioning research onto the sex offender program treatment, uh, the sex offender treatment program available to the likes of Pitchfork and Warboys in prison, is that those that undertake these programs are slightly more likely, slightly more likely to reoffend uh, on release in prison for the simple reason that they get to learn 
all of the language they get to learn all of the things that you're supposed to say about regret and remorse and how you're a different person and that was when you were a young man and you were foolish and you wouldn't do it again and obviously because rape and sexual assault doesn't come from an illness it's actually criminal behavior that men choose to carry out you can't treat it all you can do is throw enough disincentives at men like pitchfork to ensure that they never offend again and his you know, pitchfork um crimes were so heinous that we have to ask ourselves how could he possibly um be be rehabilitated what what message in society or within prison would be strong enough for him to think well clearly what i did was wrong you would think that he would have known that raping and killing two children slashing at a thousand women and girls and sexually assaulting at least one of the girls um would have actually been uh clear enough to him that that behavior was wrong if that's so easy to manipulate the rehabilitative system within prisons are you suggesting that that system is wrong or are you saying that there isn't any point having a rehabilitative system because the only people who will go into it are people who are going to manipulate it i think there's every point uh in a rehabilitative system i am appalled at the fact that the vast majority of people in prison who are there for non-violent offenses aren't often given the opportunity to rehabilitate and actually appalled that people are sent to prison for non-violent offences in the first place i think that we can these are people these are crimes we can manage outside of a custodial sentence but there are some people that we absolutely need to lock up and that they are irredeemably bad and that their behavior is normalized to the point of where they just hope they don't get caught so I'm not a hangman's logging type. I'm the opposite of that. I actually would empty our prisons of everyone except for those that pose a danger to the public. But with the likes of Pitchfork, suggesting that you can go on a sex offender rehabilitation program and be cured when it's not an illness is ludicrous. You don't rape and murder two schoolgirls, commit heinous sexual offences against well over a thousand other females, and all of a sudden get convinced on the course that your behavior was bad as if you wouldn't already know so these so-called treatment uh, programs mislead the public probably mislead the parole board because they see this behavior as a weird illness that suffered by some mentally deranged men and you can cure them it's not a mental illness it's criminal activity that men choose to carry out because they get a sexual kick from sadistically harming or even killing girls and women and that is the type of crime that i doubt very much could ever be rehabilitated okay so what you're saying is that in some cases the most important change that we need to make here is to ensure that some people let's hope it's very few are never released from prison yeah, I mean, I'm actually not in favour of whole life sentences in the main because, of course, it means there's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no reason why that prisoner could ever uh, see themselves uh, as being decent citizens. The vast majority of people that go into prison are, without question, able to rejoin society if given the opportunities that should be available to them. 
most people are in prison because of a bad start in life, because of disadvantages that they faced um, in childhood uh, and through their adulthood. But there are some men, because it is men in the main, like Pitchfork, like war boys, who feel no remorse whatsoever. They get their kicks out of hurting women and commit very serious acts of violence towards women and girls, often deadly violence. And therefore, how do we risk assess these men? What do we do? Do we just put the cat amongst the pigeons? And but how do, but Julia, how do we risk assess them? I mean, well, you know, is that, a, is, is that a question that can ever be answered? It is, if we actually have experts doing the risk assessment. The majority of people that work in prisons either sit on parole boards or that are in the probation service or running the treatment programmes, the vast majority of them don't know anything about the dynamics of sexual violence and sadistic harm committed by men to women and girls. Feminists do. Those of us that have researched this, written about it, campaigned against it, lobbied governments, lobbied the police for change, we know about it. Those that run the rape crisis centres, those that actually see the harm with their own eyes, they understand the dynamics, they understand the manipulation, they understand how these men are dangerous narcissists, and they are the women that should be um, sitting on those parole boards, doing the assessments in prison, giving expert evidence in court, not those that just are manipulated and end up feeling sorry for the likes of war boys and pitchfork and others. So yes, there is a way to risk assess, but we need to use experts to do that. Well, thanks to Julie Bindle there, a rather sobering interview. Many thanks, Julie. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, along with all our other podcasts and video series. And remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. From next year, new homes and buildings will be required to install electric vehicle charging points, Boris Johnson will confirm today. New built homes, supermarkets and workplaces will have to install the charging points as standard by law, while properties undergoing major renovations will also be obliged to make the upgrades. Downing Street branded the move as world-leading, and the hope is that charging an electric vehicle will soon become as easy as filling up with petrol. And to give us some idea of what sort of difference this legislation will make, I'm delighted to welcome to the show Dan Martin, CEO of Elmtronics, who are a supplier and installer of EV charging equipment. Um, Dan, how expensive is it to install an EV charging port at home? Hi, Jim. Right. At home, it's going to cost around about £1,000. But the good thing is there are grants out there from government to help drivers to cover more, well, a bit of the cost. But also there's um, there's quite a few uh, different incentives as well for businesses. So it's not just home, it's across there. Uh, there's grants there for businesses as well. Is a lack of charging points a reason that more people don't buy the vehicles? There is. There's a challenge with electric vehicles. If people are doing long journeys, then yeah, it can be quite challenging because there isn't a lot of infrastructure on motorways and places like that. But certainly, um, it works really well around town. So deliveries, uh, you know, localised fleets, people uh, that don't have to really travel any sort of distance. It works really, really well. So they're going to make sure that all new builds have a charging point. Uh, how much of an impact do you think this law will have on reversing climate change? 
Well, it's it's all steps. I mean, we're not going to solve this issue overnight, but certainly it takes it takes steps. Uh, legislation drives private investment as well. So uh, there'll be a lot of companies out there wanting to put money behind us in order to get charging equipment in in the ground, um, not just for residential, but also for for commercial customers. And it's it's all part of the picture. Um, it's it's important to try and get electric vehicle chargers in, as uh, as it, it's it's a big challenge to get everyone charged up on a forecourt. So if you can charge overnight or if you can charge it whilst you're outside of your workplace or at the pictures or cinema uh, or or wherever, then it makes it much, much easier. You may not know this, but I just wonder how much of a a thing it is having an electric vehicle, um, how much of a contribution it makes to reducing uh, greenhouse gases. I mean, is it is it, say, on the level of making sure that all houses are properly insulated? Is it as big a step change as that? It definitely is. I mean, carbon vehicles or transport make up uh, one of the the largest emitting uh, sources of carbon. So the more we can reduce it, and and this is the technology that we have at our fingertips at the moment to to help us to do this, the more we can do this, it it all adds up, basically. It's just part of the picture, but it's a very important part. It's clearly the boom of the next 10 years. Where are we in terms of electronic electric vehicles? What, what's the yeah. sort of percentage of ownership at the moment? Well, at the moment in the UK, it's still only around about 5% um, for, for battery electric vehicles, but that's moved significantly in the last couple of years. And, and at the moment, the only real challenge is supply. So actually getting your hands on the vehicles, uh, which is a big indicator of you know the demand there for for these these electric vehicles so it's it's we're, we're really starting to move now and things are changing and you know announcements like today just help cement the future of this technology so really important brilliant many thanks uh, to dan martin there the ceo of elmtronics and if you want to get in touch you can tweet us at mailplus or get in touch with andrew pierce on at Tory Boy Pierce. There may be even more sewage in our waters than we first feared. Britain's Environment Agency and water regulator Ofwat said it has launched a major investigation into sewage treatment after water companies admitted that they could be releasing unpermitted sewage discharges into rivers and watercourses. The water companies have been releasing wastewater directly into our water and the sea during heavy rain or storms to stop pipes becoming overloaded. But now the Environment Agency had said that several of them have admitted that many of their sewage treatment works may not be compliant with their permits and are discharging at other times too. Joining me down the line to discuss this tide of filth is Hugo Tagho, uh, Chief Executive of Surfers Against Sewage. Hugo, thanks for joining us. We're swimming in poo, basically. I mean, what's going on? Well, look, sadly, that can be the case. And some of the figures from from last year alone are are, are shocking. 
over 400,000 separate sewage pollution events in our rivers and uh, on our coastline. That was over 3 million hours of sewage pollution going into these really precious blue spaces, not just precious for wildlife that lives there, but also for the people that use them and the people that rely on them for business. Whether you're a swimmer, a surfer, a holiday maker, or another, um, another stakeholder who needs a clean and blue environment. We all know that that wild swimming became the thing to do uh, during lockdown. You don't want to swim in in filth, however. Is there a way of finding out if your local water body is contaminated with sewage? Well, absolutely. Look, the the lockdowns and the pandemic have shown us just how much people care about and rely on a a clean environment. Uh, The ocean and our rivers were some of the most missed environments um, during those lockdowns. And we've seen a boom in wild swimming, in stand-up paddleboarding, in surfing, in using water for all sorts of different sports, which are good for your health and well-being and for your mental well-being, too. Um, and there is a way of finding out and protecting yourself. There's um, an app that we've got called the Safer Season River Service, which will tell you in real time um, when and where sewage pollution is being released um, and where there's other types of pollution too for over 400 locations around the country. And there'll be many rivers added to that next year. Uh, we know why they do it, basically because they can. But uh, what are the penalties that water companies face for doing this? Well, look, um, there, there have been some, some significant fines recently. There was a, a £90 million fine um, on Southern Water last year, um, which, or earlier this year, which um, you know, showed the level it can go to. But sadly, these fines don't seem to be putting water companies off from discharging sewage on a regular basis. Um, we track and monitor thousands of sewage spills around the coastline every year at beaches that we all love, beaches that we go on um, holiday to, beaches where we surf, beaches where we swim. Um, and clearly, um, not enough is being done to really hold water companies to account. So we're encouraged now that the government believes it's passed legislation in the environment that truly will hold water companies to account. And we need to make sure that does happen now, because for too long this has gone on. Um, water companies have been treating our rivers and our coastline as a dumping ground for this effluent, whilst making vast profits. They're making billions of pounds collectively every year. And much more of that money should be reinvested in protecting these environments, uh, not just for today's swimmers, but for the future swimmers of this country, for people who need these spaces for their health and well-being. After all, we are in the decade of ecosystem restoration. This is the ocean decade. And we've just come out of this landmark conference cop 26 about protecting the environment and if we're not treating our rivers and our coastline and ocean correctly what what hope is there for us what's so distressing about talking to you hugo is it seems that it doesn't need to happen basically they're pumping this filth out into the into the rivers because well they can but it doesn't need to happen surely that you know other countries they're not pumping sewage into their rivers are they I think I think the the um, the problem lies within uh, within the, the the system they've built. There, there are these these um, parts of their their infrastructure which are called combined sewer overflows, and they're meant to only be used in extreme circumstances when there's exceptional rainfall causing a, a, an overload of the system. Uh, when they can use these pressure sort of release valves, um, you know, uh, to to stop the system backing up sewage into our homes and businesses. But clearly, they're using them on a on a regular 
um, daily basis. Um, those figures I quoted means that eight and a half thousand hours of sewage pollution are going into the environment every single day of the year. And so they're using them as a regular means of disposal of sewage pollution. That's not good enough. They should be building both more capacity where they need to, but also looking at nature-based solutions to take the pressure off the water system. So uh, rewilding our rivers, planting uh, new reed beds, uh, rewilding our wetlands to make sure that they're working with nature in this environmental decade. Uh, Hugo, as a final thought, uh, what can our listeners do to just bring all this to the attention of their water companies? Well, look, I'd urge all of the, the, the people listening to sign up to the Safer Seas and River Service. Um, it's an app that they can get for free. And within that, every time there's a sewage pollution event, they can contact directly their um, local MP, but also their water company CEO to say it's not good enough and they want to see change. Many thanks, uh, Hugo Taghome, Surface Against Sewage. And Hugo, just take care next time you go surfing, yeah? Thank you. The Daily Mail's Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood is here with the latest sports news. Uh, Matt, uh, Manchester United search for a new manager. So we've got a stand-in to be replaced by an interim to do the role until a full-time replacement for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is appointed. So I think when it comes to succession planning, Manchester United are the sort of Logan Roy of football, aren't they? This is nonsense. It is indeed. I mean, it, it's astonishing, really, for the biggest club uh, in the country to to run themselves in the way they have, where it's become obvious for you know months that um, that they were going to need a replacement for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as he struggled. You know, you can go back to a four-two defeat to Leicester about two months ago, but even further, you know, and, and even if Ole was doing really well, you think they'd have a succession plan in place because you never know how quickly these things can turn but it's become obvious for the last few months that Solskjaer was not the man um, you know you could even argue back to last season but certainly of late and uh, and they've got no one in place so what they've done is they've appointed Michael Carrick as you say to be an interim or caretaker until they appoint an interim manager till the end of the season at which point they'll appoint a new manager to take them forward so um, and the fact they haven't put out any feelers or done any um, contacted anyone because they didn't want to that you know the potential for that to leak and to upset ollie in the role that he was in uh, is equally astonishing so they're basically sitting down this morning with a, a blank canvas and working out where they go uh, in terms of not just the uh, not just the um, full-time manager but the interim to take them through to the end of the season so quite astonishing that the biggest club could leave themselves uh, without a plan b now they've, they're giving it to carrick as I say, to take them forward. But Carrick was in working so closely with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and doing a lot of the coaching anyway that it seems like that you know this has got a potential to keep going badly wrong with Carrick at the helm. So just, yeah, a mess. Great news. This Manchester United fans must be in cloud cuckoo land at the moment. Listen, uh, let's go to some good news. England look really good in beating the World Rugby Champions South Africa on Saturday. Uh, is this the start of a shiny new era or another false dawn? I think it could be the start of a new era. Some of these young kids who came in and played, you know, uh, were, were very good. Now, look, it, it, it was an amazing game. Um, England gave away 18 penalties. Now, you don't give away 18 penalties and win a rugby match uh, very often. So they were, um, they were sort of almost, in a way, fortunate to win the game because they were backed against the wall for large periods of it. But they did come up with some brilliant moments and scored a couple of wonderful tries. Uh, Rafi Quirk, who came, on, who, who came on and played very well, 
uh, scored one of the tries. So um, Freddie Stewart was brilliant at 15. So some of these youngsters who came in, and of course Marcus Smith, who nervously kicked the last-minute penalty, which um, gave England the victory, was superb too. So some of these youngsters who've come in, uh, obviously Andy Farrell, uh, sorry, Owen Farrell wasn't there. Uh, so some of these youngsters who've come in and taken the place of some of these more established stars uh, were very good. And it would be very interesting to see if this is a new dawn. The Six Nations are the next big thing for England. They've won all their autumn internationals. Um, and now they look towards the Six Nations. And if Eddie Jones keeps faith with some of these youngsters, which I'm sure he will, uh, it could be that they build up to the next World Cup in 2023 with an exciting young team going forward. So, yeah, it was a great, it was an amazing game. Uh, live long in the memory. Uh, a great and historic win for England over the world champions. And uh, if some of these youngsters are given their heads, then they, they, it could be that England could go one step further in the next World Cup than they managed in the last one. Ireland beat them as well, South Africa. So does that mean South Africa are in decline or, or are the European teams just getting better? I think it's been a long, hard slog for South Africa of late. Um, they played a lot of rugby and it probably felt like a, the end of a long, uh, long season and then a long uh, autumn, uh, autumn series. But yeah, there's no doubt that when you look at the European teams, I mean, Ireland are very strong, playing some brilliant rugby as we saw when they beat the All Blacks. Uh, France are obviously superb. Um, you know, sort of almost favourites to win the world, the next World Cup. So Ireland, France, England, Scotland play some magic rugby as well. It's great to watch. Uh, so, yeah, the Six Nations promises to be uh, fascinating. Um, and um, you could say that there's a, 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 a yeah, strong and confident sense, sense about, the, uh, about the Six Nations teams at the moment, about the European teams. So, yeah, interesting times ahead. Matt, uh, Ireland beat the All Blacks. England have beaten South Africa. Uh, Scotland are looking good. Uh, is this kind of a switch in, in dynamics? Uh, are the Europeans now becoming dominant? And, and if they're also good, who is going to win the Six Nations? Well, uh, yeah, good question, because the Six Nations now, as you say, you've got a very, very strong France team at the moment um, who are probably favourites to, uh, to win the next World Cup. Um, you've got England, who hopefully are coming good after an abysmal Six Nations last year. Ireland, as you say, uh, beaten the All Blacks and look very, very strong and played some wonderful uh, running rugby um, and were, were thrilling. And Scotland, as you say, can also play well. And let's not forget Wales, who obviously are um, a great side. The only ones we can definitely discount are Italy. So who's going to win the Six Nations? I, the last game of that is France v England. It's on the final evening of the Six Nations. That could well be the game that decides who wins it. Um, but maybe I'm doing a disservice to Ireland there. It's very hard to pick between those top three, but it's going to be fascinating. There's going to be some, hopefully, some great rugby played. And if England can build on the uh, the victory over South Africa at the weekend, then I think they've got a great chance. But yeah, France, I'd say, would be my favourites for the Six Nations, especially given they've got that final game in Paris against England. But it's going to be good, and there's some good teams, uh, and it'll be good to watch. Brilliant. Something to look forward to. And uh, Manchester United might have won a game by then as well. So um, many thanks, Matt. I wouldn't, yes, I wouldn't bet on that. I mean, it's February, but you <laughs> never know. You never know. Adele has persuaded Spotify to remove the shuffle button as the default option so that her albums now automatically play in the artist-designated order of tracks. Adele reposted the announcement on Twitter, writing, This is the only request I had in our ever-changing industry. 
We don't create albums with so much care and thought in our track listings for no reason. A Spotify spokesperson said they were excited to be rolling out the feature, which was long requested by both users and artists. Now, with me to discuss the implications of this story is the man who knows the great Adrian Thrills, pop music writer for the Daily Mail. Adrian, I hadn't realised that Dell had a new album out. Um, but anyway... I know, it's, it's really... <laughs> suddenly came from nowhere. Is not it? Yeah. Is this a publicity stunt? Or does I she have a point? So. I think she's got a, a really valid point. And, uh, and to be honest, I'm, I'm with her all the way. I think uh, the first thing that struck me when I, I listened to 30, I, I went to a kind of a playback and uh, listened to it all the way through. And the thing that really struck me is just how well... Adele can actually pace an album. It's a record with a real kind of ebb and flow. It opens with with kind of some typical Adele ballads. Then it becomes a bit more up tempo. There's a couple, you know, can I get it? And oh my god! And then it goes into a jazzier interlude before you're back for the bold, dramatic finale with the big lovers of game and the big power ballads. And I think it's um, it is a record like like a lot of the classic records that. Um, we probably grew up on in the age of vinyl. I think it's, you know, the sequencing is very important. So it's a bit like a film in in that sense. It's been put together for a purpose. Yeah, I think there's a narrative. And I mean, you only have to go back to, I, mean, I, I mentioned, you know, the age of vinyl. I think, you know, you had to say things within a that kind of 40, 45 minute window for a single album. And you'd have to have an ebb and flow. And I think it died a little bit with the CD where you could get an hour's worth of music and then downloads and then streaming. You know, you just pick and mix. And I think in the age of, of TikTok, it's really just about, with, with pop singles, it's about hooking people in the first 20 or 30 seconds. And that doesn't really lend itself so well to the, the culture of the album. I think you've got two distinct strands, really. You've got the likes, and one one level you've got one camp i guess you've got maybe ed sheeran and that's knocking ed i think he's he's really good at making these kind of really catchy earworms but in a way with his album which is a very good record it doesn't really matter if you listen to bad habits first or shivers or tides whereas with with adele's and even i'd also say with the other big album of the autumn the other one i think that has a real kind of a real kind of flow to it. it you know it opens with um i still have faith in you which is their kind of big statement of intent their message to their fans it goes through a few upbeat songs and then you've got the big divorce ballads and then a kind of orchestral finale and it's it's a record if you like abba it's a record you should listen to all the way through and you know, i think a lot of the records a lot of the real classic records um from you know the beatles through bowie and oasis they um you, you listen to records in a certain order so, but the shuffle being the default on Spotify, that's what she was particularly uh, concerned with. She wanted that to change. So it's been that for quite a while. So you think that that has changed the way we listen to music as a result of that particular facility, do you? I think, I think that's been, it's, I think it's a symptom rather than a cause. I think people, people just dip in and dip out um, with, with a lot of music these days, you know, our lives are so hectic and there's so much information, so much music out there. Maybe people don't have time to listen to, to a record all the way through. Um, but I, I do think if you're, if you're quite serious about music, I think, I think it's quite nice to have a record that you do listen to all the way through. I mean, I, you know, you know, the Beatles, Sergeant Pepper being, being a case in point, uh, or even Abbey Road. I mean, I can't play come together by the Beatles without thinking it's going to go into something. And, um, Likewise, um, you know, if you, um, I, I thought a really good example of a really well-structured album was um, 
Oasis, what's the story Morning Glory uh, in the 90s? It kind of opens with a couple of big rockers in Hello and Roll With It. Then you go straight into the ballad, you know, two fast tracks, then third tracks, the ballad. And then, of course, you finish with the big epic champagne supernova, all eight minutes of it. Um, and I think it's, it is like a, a, they're like short films, mini operas. Um, yeah, but ultimately, Adrian, though, aren't, aren't we all just going to put one of her tracks into a playlist? Isn't that how we really consume music now? And so we're probably not going to listen to her album. Even so, are we? I mean, hasn't the whole digital process made it so much easier for us to archive in the way we want to listen? Well, yes. I mean, there is that. And also, you can you can deactivate the shuffle button. It's not it's not compulsory to listen to albums all the way through. But um, but I do think there's you know there's something of a that it became something of a lost art, the art of constructing an album. And I think. Uh, with the likes of Adele, it's it's just a reminder that you can listen to pop music as a as a complete work of art. You know, without sounding too high and mighty about it, it's uh, you know it, it does work. I mean, you know, you still have the option to construct playlists, and uh, I think people love constructing playlists. And I think some of the Spotify, the kind of Spotify curated playlists are great. There's, you know, I kind of if I'm on a motorway drive, I'll just uh, have a look at my Spotify, and it will um it will kind of suggest the playlist. Um, depending on something I'd listened to over the last two or three weeks. And I think that's, that's quite a good function as well. But, uh, but I'm certainly with Adele, and just shows the power of Adele that she can make a request that's immediately granted. I'm, <laughs> yes. uh, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm with her on this one. Now listen, AJ, I'm going to put you on the spot. Go on. One album to listen to. Which is the album that you think best exemplifies this idea that you have to listen to it as the artist came up with it? Okay, well, I would probably go, I think I would go with um, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust by Bowie. I think it's, uh, it kind of flows. There's a, there's a kind of concept that's, that's not an overriding one, but it kind of links the songs. And I think it's a really well, beautifully paced record and you know, great, one of the best albums of all time. You're not so Bowie gets there, my vote. Uh, You're not wrong there. Uh, listen, uh, me, read more from Adrian Thrills every week in the Daily Mail. There's no one better. Uh, thanks for joining us, Adrian. That's all we have time for for today, sadly. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Jim White, standing in for Andrew Pearce, and I'll be back tomorrow. Until then, have a great evening. Good night. Good night.